So, um, yeah, good, good to be together this morning. And, uh, but yeah, glad you're here. Uh, this is not on script, but it was kind of interesting. Uh, this, this last Friday night, uh, um, Tatum and I went on a, on a, a super last second uh, daddy-daughter date, uh, head in the heart. Anybody heard of head in the heart? Yeah, so they were, yeah, we got one. Oh, there you go. So like the three of us know who we're talking about here. There you go. Um, but it was a fun, fun band. It is, I know it's one that I really enjoy and Tatum likes too. So, so I was like, last second, we got some tickets, went up to the uh, uh, downtown Salt Lake and it was crazy. I mean, there's like several thousand people just all crammed together. And it was kind of weird because the music was really, really good. Um, but it was really interesting watching people because like for, for like Tatum and I, it's like, oh yeah, this band is great. The music is fun. They're talented, blah, blah, blah. But you see people that were like full on, I'm like watching. And this is like, this is a worship festival. And there was Tatum and I both like love people watching. We try to just watch and not do the judgy part, but it's kind of hard not to become judgy sometimes, right? It's Tatum. She's the worst. So, um, I judge her for her judginess. Um, she didn't learn it from me. She learned it from Nicole. But um, anyhow, but there was this one, one gal who was just like the whole concert, she, and it wasn't even for Head in the Heart. It was for the opener, Father John Misty or something like that. But she's like this the whole time. She's like yelling out and there's like for certain lyrics of the song, she's like, like this, you know, like, and then, and then she kept on doing this and, and it was just crazy. And I was like, if, if you just, just, Put Christian lyrics to it, it looks like they're worshiping, right? And so it's just bizarre. So, so it was kind of a surreal experience because I haven't been to like a, a big concert for quite a while. And, and I mean, other than obviously our worship band and Rachel Pankratz and, and Dugan Irby. Um, but, uh, um, but anyhow, it was, it was this weird moment where I thought, this is a great concert, but I'm so glad I'm not here to worship. I'm so glad that I have a family that I can worship together with, and we know who we're worshiping, the creator of all things. And so, so it's kind of fun. And then I'm, I was just thinking about that this morning as we're worshiping, and then I'm thinking through like our church family and everybody that's in this room, and, and we're real people. We come together, and we have these lives, this other six and a half days out of the week, and we have, we have a lot of people with physical problems. I mean, we have a lot of like health issues that are going on. We're, str- we're struggling in that wrestling like how to move forward with, we have relational issues, we have job issues, we have financial issues. We're all real people. If you're a real person, raise your hand. Okay, look around at who is raising their hand, right? Make eye contact with someone you don't know because they're a real person too, right? And so we're all in this together. And that's where I just think God created us for community. We're a family. We need each other. I was listening to a song last night. So like people need people. Because we point each other towards Jesus, we live out the tangible hands and feet of, of Jesus and the good news of Jesus. And so that's who we are. That's what we want to be and what we want to do. So never underestimate the value of that. And it's always, we want to make sure that that keeps the focus of, of being a family that is growing disciples who love God, love people, serve the world. Okay, here we go. That was for free. You didn't, you didn't, that was, that was just uh, last second here. So, so there you go. Now, now comes the charge part. No, just kidding. All right. So I was in my junior year of high school. I think it was the summer after my junior year of high school. And I had just gotten a new car. You guys want to see my new car right here? Yeah. 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 And Nicole goes, seriously, she goes, you took a senior picture with your car. I was like, well, yeah, I'm a dude. So of course, like my car is like my babe, you know, like, 
I got a 1989 Grand Prix SE. And if you don't know your history, SE stands for? <laughs> that too. Sport edition. Oh, yeah. It was a Grand Prix, y'all. That was a hot car in the 80s and 90s. Drew knows. Drew knows. So he had a, a newer version. But, but this was my pride and joy. I loved it. It was fully loaded. It had these lumbar seats to where you could, like, inflate things at different positions. Had controls on the steering wheels. What car had steering wheel controls in the 80s, right? It was, it was this, I love this car so much, right? And, and uh, so I was super proud of it. One night I drove into Henderson. Now you got to understand, I grew up in a town of a thousand people. We did not even have a stoplight. We had stop signs here and there, but, but no stoplights. Main Street was literally two blocks long. And so cruising was really fun. It was hard not to get dizzy when you're cruising, right? Any, anybody remember cruising? Anybody cruise? Thank you. I was, I was starting to feel my age there a little bit. So it's fun because you would go two, two blocks. And, and I, was, I had my windows open. The stereo was feeling good. And I mean, I was cranking tunes, probably like Informer, Hip Hop Hooray, Mr. Wendell, probably some Pearl Jam. Not so much Metallica or, or that because that wasn't the vibe. More, more like, whoop, there it is. You know, um, you're getting the picture. You're getting the picture. You're seeing him. He has a little, little hip hop to him right there. Glad I didn't pop the collar. That was my older brother in the, in the mid-80s. This was the 90s. We didn't pop collars anymore, you know. Come on, don't be weird. Um, but anyhow, so I, I was cruising around with my windows open, just bumping the tunes, everything like that, and I turned into, yes, the Snow Queen, because we were a rural town, not Dairy Queen. It was the Snow Queen. And I was turning around in the parking lot, and all of a sudden, pow, my car exploded. And what happened is, what's that? We don't, yeah, no, no, there was no pictures on that, fortunately, and, and no video surveillance back then of what happened after, after that happened, too. I look through my open window, I'm sopping wet, and I see a bunch of college kids that, were, that came back for the summer, and they were all holding water balloons. They're like, <laughs> oh, I flipped that car around, and I went skidding to a halt. I jumped out, and I start yelling and screaming, and I think I've told this story before. I cussed a lot as a kid, but apparently I didn't cuss enough to know how to put cuss words together in a coherent stream because what came out just didn't even make any sense whatsoever. And I was just like, you ever get so mad? It's like, yeah, like that. And you're just shaking. And then you're like, what is I saying? What's coming out of my mouth right now, right? And all of a sudden I realized I had just like vomited all this vulgarness towards them. And they're just sort of like, ah, <laughs> they're laughing at me. And I am sopping wet, and they're laughing at me, and I'm shaking. I'm so mad. And so what do I do? I just turn back around, get in my waterlogged car, close up the windows, and, and drive home. Like, I was, I was dejected, right? It was so, the rejection that I felt decimated me. One, they desecrated my car, right? That was my sacred space. That was my personal kingdom. That was my castle. And then, and then they laughed in my face. They rejected me. I've heard before that stress, rejection, trials actually reveal what's inside of us. Nicole and I, uh, years ago, before we moved back to Utah to plant a church, we actually went through what was, it was called a church planter's assessment process. And it was like three or four days long. We hopped on a plane. We went to this, this, this campus. And, 
And, uh, and, and we had done like survey after survey after survey. I mean, we heard horror stories of, of like we'd meet with psychologists and counselors and they'd ask us all these like very, very intimate and invasive questions. I mean, like our, our, our married life, our finances, our you know, individual pasts, our things like that. And, and then all of a sudden we realized, and they, they kept us up way late at night. And then, oh yeah, by the way, by tomorrow morning, you need to have this prepared. And we're like, it's one in the morning and you want us to be ready by 7.30? Like how, you know? And all of a sudden we realized, oh, they're turning up the heat because what comes out when you're heated up is what's really on the inside. And so you've probably been there, right? You get in the heat of that pressure cooker moment where things are falling apart, people are laughing at you, people are rejecting you, things are going bad. You just, you're just at your wit's end and you just snap. Unfortunately, that came from somewhere inside of us. There was something cooking, something brewing, something uh, boiling underneath the surface that comes out in those moments. Things stop working. People disappoint you. You disappoint people, right? We don't always like what comes out. Well, it's crazy to think that even the creator of all things was rejected by his own creation. Jesus understands our experience because he willfully put himself into his own creation to walk among us so that he could experience what we experience and then relate to us in the reality of our experience. So last week we talked about how Jesus was telling these stories called parables that have like these underlying meanings and and, and if you're just thinking it's stupid, you're not going to understand it. But if you're kind of curious, it's going to speak to you, and it's actually going to open up our hearts and our minds even more. And it's going to like, oh, that makes sense, right? And last week, we looked at two stories where the, the kingdom of God is like a treasure that we find, and we sell everything in our life to go all in for this treasure, right? And then the second one is like the, the kingdom of God is a merchant who finds valuable pearls. And on one hand, yeah, the kingdom of God is, is like that pearl, and we're the merchants, but really, I think it actually should be translated that, that he is the merchant, and we are the pearls. And the kingdom of God is us going all in with God, but it's also God going all in with us, for us. And so those, like last week felt really good. That was a fun passage. Three verses, easy to preach, fun. We all left here feeling encouraged and challenged, right? Well, he keeps on going. He should have just stopped while he was ahead, right? Because this morning we're going to see yet another parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And you're going to see it doesn't go quite as well. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 51. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up to the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. This is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. Do you know how badly I wanted to skip over this passage? I mean, last week was great. I didn't want to go here. It would have been so much easier just to skip over this, right? Because we don't want to think about this. But Jesus says, okay, here's the thing. When you find the goodness of God, get rid of, like, go all in with it because he's all in with you. But there's another part. We are spiritual people. We come 
from a spiritual reality. There is something that is unseen that is more real than anything that we see, touch, feel, smell, hear, anything like that, right? And so the reality is, is that life with God is great here and for all eternity, but the alternative is not very good. In fact, it's awful. It's terrible. If we, and, and here's the thing, is that God's kind of like, well, if you don't want me during your few years on earth, you want to do your own thing, go your own way, why would I ever impose myself on you for all the rest of eternity? And, and people will say, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I like to say, well, I don't know if he really sends them there. I think he allows them to go there. Because people would say, well, why can't I just go to heaven after I die? Well, do you want him here on earth during our life, during the years of our life? Does that make sense? And I think all of a sudden it's kind of like we want to put the pressure on God because, well, how could you do this? How could you allow this? How could you? And he says, it's up to you. The choice is in your hands. And so that's why I'm going through all these things to, to, to help you find me and to, to show my love and to show my grace and to like, look at all these things. But sometimes we have to understand the bad news before we realize just how good the good news is. Unfortunately, too often we are like, yeah, the good news, the good news, the good news. Wait, what? What's the bad news? No, 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 I'm out, right? Like we allow that to trip us up instead of saying, look, this is, this is a tightrope walk without a safety net. We, we either get to the other side with God, and he guides us. He's like, you don't even have to do the work of getting across the guide rope. I'll take you. I'll carry you. Just surrender into me, and I'll take you. But the alternative is, if you don't want him here, why would he ever, why would a loving God force himself on you for the rest of eternity? Does that make sense? I think we have to remember that when we're processing stuff like this. Now, it's this next verse 52 is kind of weird because he says, then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. He's telling us all these things about the kingdom of God, and he kind of says, hey, if you were raised in this religious system and you studied the Old Testament, and now all of a sudden you realize this is all pointing to Jesus, it makes sense. It's not the law. It's not the temple. It's not the rituals. It's not the sacrifice. It's not that. It's all Jesus. And he says, you actually have a very unique and full picture, these gems of truth of, I understand the new truth and where it came from in the old truth. And so it's really cool. He's like, if you, if you surrender the old system to God, all of a sudden, boom, it starts to make sense. I laugh because Tatum gets, sorry, I'm picking on Tatum. She's like, don't leave me, Carter and Colson, because dad's going to keep on talking to me. She's never going to want to come again. But it's like the old truck that I, get, that I gave her. See, I drove that nice car, and I make her drive my, my 22-year-old truck. But like the, the, the key doesn't work. You have to jiggle it just the right way for the tumblers to fall into place to start the car, right? And it's hard. It's really hard to do. But it's kind of like, this is kind of like this. He goes, all of a sudden, you understand like, oh, this is what this has all been about, where this came from, right? But so many people not only missed it, they actively rejected it. We see how people respond in verse 53 through 58. When Jesus had finished telling these stories and illustrations, he left that part of the country. 
He returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in a synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get his wisdom and power to do these miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter's son, and we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. It's kind of like they were like the college kids that destroyed my car and my, my pride, right? Like my heart, my soul, right? They're kind of like, what are you doing? You're Jesus. You're a construction worker's son. We know your brothers. We know your mom. We know your sisters. Like, who are you and what gives you the right to talk about religious stuff to us? You're just a simple construction worker guy, right? And so they destroyed him. They, they attacked him, his character, and his family. Now, what's interesting is that their unbelief blinded them to what was right in front of them and what he was doing. And so, so it's kind of interesting because at the end, you ever talk with someone and they're more preoccupied with what's on their phone than, than what you're saying, and they won't even look you in the eye or even pretend to listen? They're like, uh-uh, uh-uh. You're like, okay, you're not listening, so I'm just going to move on, right? That's basically what he says, or that's what he does. He just keeps on going. Now things are going to, in chapter 14, things go from, from bad to even crazier bad, right? Um, what's interesting here is that Herod Antipas was the governor. He was the Jewish governor. So he was basically a traitor that turned on his own people, and he represented the occupying government of Rome. And so he was kind of partially Jewish and was kind of amongst the people, but yet he, he basically turned on his own people to be a leader for the Roman government. We see this in, in uh, chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is why he can do such miracles. They were kind of like, wait, who is this Jesus guy? He's doing stuff like John the Baptist did, and we killed him, so he must be a ghost, right? He must be a, a, a resurrected form of John the Baptist. Now, um, we're going to, things grab a hold here. All right, verse 3. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. John had been telling Herod, it's, it is against God's law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John as a prophet. Okay, I study this because I'm kind of like, I know there's more stuff going on here. There's some weird stuff, okay? So I did a deep dive in this. You're welcome. We're going to go here, right? So Herod Antipas was a leader, and, and what happens is that he actually goes and stays with his half-brother, Herod Philip. Herod Philip had a wife called Herodias, and they were happily married, right? As happily as you could be in the, in the, in the Herod line of family, right? And so Herod Antipas goes into Herod Philip's, and is like, hey, brother's here hanging out. Hey, Herodias, you want to get with me instead of my dorky brother, right? And she goes, yeah, sure, let's, let's, let's all divorce my brother. And and so she divorces her brother, or divorces Herod Antipas's brother to marry Herod Antipas, okay? Um, now, what's really interesting, though, um, here's a picture. I'm very visual. Hope you guys can see this. Um, 
This is the family tree. This is Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus. Herod the Great had a bunch of wives. Okay, from, from, uh, from this wife, he had Herod Antipas. From that wife, he had Herod Philip. Okay, oh, but wait, did you guys see this? From this wife, he had another kid who had Herodias. So not only does Herodias split up, uh, she divorces one brother, she marries the other stepbrother, but you look at the family tree, she's their niece. You should be groaning right now. This is like, we don't, yeah, this is not normal behavior, okay? If, if we need to do a series on that, we can go to Leviticus, all right? So, um, but yeah, so anyhow, so Herodias is, she's with one uncle, and then she leaves the other uncle for another uncle. This is not okay. I don't know why John the Baptist had a problem with this, okay? And so John is like, this is wrong. This is a sin. We should, you should not be doing this. And so he speaks out against it. Well, that doesn't sit well. So like, leave me and my family alone. I can do what I want in, in, my, in my marriage, right? And so, so he is jailed. Herod is afraid to kill him because everybody's a big John the Baptist fan. So he doesn't kill him. Well, then verse 6. But a birthday party, but at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him. Okay. No, it gets weirder. <laughs> In Mark chapter 6, verse 21, we see that at this birthday party, Herodias throws this party and invites all of Herod Antipas's buddies. And so you have government leaders, military leaders, social leaders, everything like that. So get the picture in your head of Herod Antipas and a bunch of his dude friends, a bunch of old guys, and all of a sudden in comes Herodias's daughter, who some scholars through extra-biblical stuff discern she's probably about 12 to 14 years old. And she dances for all of these guys. Now in this government, it's very influenced by Rome. You know what's going on in Rome at the time, right? Like not a lot of morality going on. Okay, it gets weirder. Okay, go back to that diagram. Go back, go back to the, uh, the <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is some weird incestual shoots and ladders game here, right? So, so uh, okay, look over here. This is a daughter right here. This is her great uncles. She's dancing, a 12 to 14-year-old girl is dancing for her great uncles slash his stepdaughter, her stepdad. Okay. Now, I know we're all uncomfortable right now, right? You're like, Jason, move on. <laughs> One more thing before we move on. He was very pleased by it. He was very excited by it. I'm going to leave it there. Okay. All right. Verses, we're going to come back to this in just a little bit. Verses 7 through 11. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. At her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. Then the king regretted what he had said, but because of the vow he had made in front of his guests, all of his buddies, he issued the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. This is awful. This is horrible. Little side note here. Herod was asking for it. He put himself in a compromised position, and obviously this wasn't the first time. 
right? He consistently put himself in the compromised position to where he was, he was drunk, he was worked up, he was out of his mind, he wasn't thinking clearly, he had no accountability, he probably had all of his buddies that were like, yeah, do it, do it, right? Like, and, and then it's like, I'll make any promise that you want. Okay, I want John the Baptist's head. He's like, oh, shoot. Is he going to make himself look stupid by going back on his word? No, he's all in now. He's all in, and so he makes it happen. There's a lesson there, right? Don't put ourselves in compromised situations once or a bunch of times, right? And don't make promises, empty prom- like open promises to where people can take advantage of that. But again, he was being pretty stupid at the time, and, and he probably had it coming, right? And, and John the Baptist pays the price for that. So what's the point of this? Why, why one, did I talk about this? But two, why is it in here? I think it's partially to do this. Herod has a Herod is a blasphemous traitor to his God, to his people. He commits adultery, divorce, incest, and murder, and so much more. He's a bad dude. Jesus talks about the problem of humanity. We were created by God... He loves us, but yet we choose to go our own way, and God honors that. He says, if you don't want me here on earth, then I'm not going to force myself on, on, on you for eternity. Okay? But I want you to know, I want you to be a fish that I catch that comes with me for eternity. Okay? He's very clear about this. Who do the religious leaders go after? Someone who is clearly the fulfillment of generations and generations of prophecy, who, who demonstrates a, a firm, a, a lovingness that might be firm, but it's still coming from a place of love? Or do they go after the guy who's just all sorts of crazy? They don't mess with Herod because Herod has established a system that's wrong but leaves them to do their own thing. How often are we like that? I don't want to address what's really wrong and what's going on because I can go life pretty much as normal. But as soon as Jesus comes in and says, you're either with me or if you're not, you're, you're against me. I'm sorry. Well, you can't say that, Jason. That's mean to people, right? Look at how messed up this story is. They literally kill John the Baptist for speaking out against that. And then they eventually, we know the story, they're going to kill Jesus because he's disrupting their system. We have to catch the, the, understand the picture of just how screwed up things were. We think we live in an awful world. Our world is broken. It's chaotic. It's crazy. We have all sorts of stuff going on that is wrong. It is wrong. It's not new. It's not new. This stuff has been going on for generations after generations and generations. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to insert their sovereignty over God's sovereignty, we're a mess. And the good news is that Jesus comes to to save us from our own attempts at sovereignty. Jesus is disruptive to the sinful systems of today. Verse 12, later John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. Verse 13, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. 
Here is God incarnate, the creator in his own creation, and this news punches him in the gut. John was his best friend and cousin. They, they were in ministry from the womb together, right? Like, they were tight. And it hurts Jesus. It hurts him. Things were not going well. He's been rejected. His family and his character is being attacked. And now his friends are getting killed. Even Jesus needs to get away to be alone, to process, to regather himself, to center himself, and to ground himself. If Jesus needed to, we need to. I think sometimes we forget how important that time is just to spend time listening to God, crying out. I don't know exactly, it doesn't talk exactly what he did, but I guarantee he was talking with his father, right? He was, he was praying and, and, and reminding himself of what's truth, kind of like he did in the desert with temptation. He was probably reciting scriptural truths to himself. Let's not miss this, this tender moment right here, right? But people are going to be people. Verse 13, but the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. People were coming from all over to follow him. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus sees the crowd. He knows what's going on. It's kind of like as he's looking over this multitude of people, he knows without ever even meeting them. He knows where they've been, what they've, been done, what they've done, what's been done to them, the struggles, the fears, the insecurities, the pridefulness. He sees everything that's going on in our lives, and he's broken by it. The word compassion, has compassion, literally means from the gut, from the bowels, like he was sick to his stomach. Have you ever gotten news before that you literally think you're going to throw up when you hear it? it? It literally is kind of like, oh. He's moved deeply by compassion for them. And what does he do? He heals them. Really quickly, here's three reasons why Jesus performs miracles. Number one, to reveal who he is. He has the power to, to fix us, to redeem us, to bring healing and wholeness and restoration Miracles are merely signs into the reality that's beyond our physical world. Number two, to teach important truths and to demonstrate a point. And then number three, because he genuinely loves us. Jesus worked miracles because he loves us. In the middle of the rejection, Jesus reveals all these things. And so then the rest of that chapter up to, well, not chapter, but up to verse 21, he goes on and he miraculously, with five loaves of bread and two little fish, he feeds about 10 to 15,000 people. It says 5,000 men, so we're assuming probably 10 to 15,000 plus people with that little bit of food, right? That probably wasn't easy to do because, I mean, you think about 10, 15,000 people, but he's feeding them because he loves them. All right, so here's the big idea this morning. Rejection reveals Jesus' heart instead of destroying it. The rejection that Jesus faced actually revealed who he was and what was on the inside. Three ways that Jesus' heart is revealed through rejection. Number one, Jesus refused to be formed into our images 
and our expectations. I, Nicole and I sometimes have this joke. It's kind of like, man, I, I have some suggestions to G, for Jesus, right? Like, I, I could help him out with his job. Like, if you'd only do this and this and this, boy, I, you know, it's kind of like, and we, we laugh about it, right? But I think deep down inside of us, sometimes it's kind of like, man, if you could only fit my image of you, my expectation for you, right? Like we said, chapter 13, verses 44 and 46 uh, felt pretty good, but we don't like to hear about the alternative, right? We want to, to have buddy Jesus and, and good times Jesus and like self-improvement Jesus and things like that. We don't want him to present us with maybe the hard stuff. We matter to Jesus. He loves us. And because he loves us, he wants us to understand what it means to spend eternity with him forever because eternity is a very long time. Number two, Jesus recognizes and engages the reality of the situation and doesn't get sidetracked. He's not going to be swayed by us because he is who he is. He's good. He's sovereign. He's loving. He's true. All these things like that. And because of that, he sees the reality of the situation and he's not going to get sidetracked into all these things. And when people are attacking him, it's sort of like, Jesus, what do you know? You're just a construction worker's son. Oh, yeah, but my dad was really smart, though. You know, and so like, you don't know me. I've, I've studied the law. And I, he could have gotten so defensive about it, right? But instead he says, hey, you're obviously not in a good place. You're blinded. You, you, you have, want nothing to do with me, so I'm not going to force myself on you. He, he sees the reality, but then he also goes in and he sees the reality of the brokenness of the multitudes. It's not just this cold, callous, well, you know, good luck on your own. No, he sees the reality and he engages it. I mean, think about this. It starts off with what seems like, well, I can't believe in Jesus because he says it's either heaven or hell, right? Like, I can't get about that. And then we focus on that, but then look at how the passage ends he is compassionate. He doesn't want anybody. He, he's like, this is the reality, God or not. I want you to find God. That's who he is. He reveals his goodness, his compassion, his love, his heart. And so because of that, the third thing is that Jesus lovingly continues on his long obedience in the same direction. I love that quote from Eugene Peterson. He has a book called that. It's a loving continuance on the long obedience in the same direction. He could have focused on himself. He could have, you know, gone all Elijah and like, you know, like suck fire down on him or Elijah, like, like she bears. Where's a good she bear when you need them to, to rip those people up? You know, sorry, Old Testament humor there. Um, um, but his path, his trajectory, his orientation was love and compassion and that was revealed. He saw the physical, emotional, relational, spiritual needs of people, and he simply loved them in a tangible way. So how do we move from belief to action, knowing to doing? Three things. One, when we experience rejection, look at what's revealed. As I think through things I've experienced, and things were hard, and feel rejected, or accused, or things like that, what was revealed in me? What was the internal conversation that I had in that moment, after that moment, continuing from that moment, right? Like, what is revealed through the rejection that we face? Do we conform to others' expectations or do we insist on our own expectations? 
Or do these things drive us to Jesus now and forever? Second, how have you been sidetracked or lost your way in seasons of rejection, struggle, trial? Like, how have we created false idols, false plans? We, we've, we've just twisted things, or we've just walked away, right? How have we gotten sidetracked and lost our way during seasons of rejection? How can we focus on that reality just like Jesus did? Like, instead of focusing on what we want to focus on, how do we step back and just say, what's really going on here, God? And what do you want to do in this and through this, in me and through me? And then last, what long obedience in the same, same direction is Jesus calling you to today? What situations are we in the middle of? It might be rejection. It might be struggle. It might be temptation. It might be addiction. It might be whatever it is that the Spirit is speaking to you right now. That's probably what he's going to talk to you about, right? If that's coming into your mind right now, how is Jesus calling you to a long obedience in the same direction? Why is this so hard? Why can't it just get better? Why can't I just uh, seek Jesus? Look for Jesus' guidance. Look for his help along the way, right? Because he will meet you in that with his love and compassion. So this morning, we're going to wrap up, we're going to close up with, with uh, celebrating communion together. Because communion was the ultimate act of sacrificial love and compassion. He knew that we would never be able to follow the law good enough to make ourselves right with God because that's what the law was. We were legalists, right? We used religion and practices and buildings and, and structures and all these things that as long as they were in place, then God would be happy with us. But we're not perfect. We're human beings. We mess up. We fail. We hurt each other. We hurt, we hurt ourselves. We, we do all sorts of crazy things, right? But Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. The Old Testament was leading all up to this to, to prove the point of just saying, I am doing for you what you could never do for yourself, and it's okay because I'm going to freely give it to you. He was moved by compassion to sacrifice for us. And so that's what communion is. He says, whenever you break this bread, whenever you drink from this cup, remember the sacrifice. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. That is an Old Testament sacrificial covenant relationship. He paid the price. Therefore, our bill is paid. The other night at the concert, had to have cash to get into the parking garage. I don't carry cash on me very often. And so we had to circle around. All of a sudden, I just, I said, hey, turn to this other car. Hey, do you have $10, extra $10 of cash? I'll Venmo you right now. Let's just quickly do it. And they said, ah, we got you. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. And then like, we're like, we're like looking through the concert. Where was those nice people in the car that paid $10 for parking for me, right? That was 10 measly dollars. Jesus pays the price for all the brokenness, all the rejection, all the sin, all the hurt, all the addiction, everything that we struggle with, he pays the price for that. We get it paid for. That's an incredible gift. And so when we celebrate communion, it's kind of like, thank you, Jesus, for paying that for me. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you for doing for me and in me and eventually through me that I could never even dream of doing on my own. So this morning, if you love Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to him, this is for you. Come up. 
We're going to have two songs. The worship band can come up and, and close us out here. Um, we're going to have two songs, and, and we have a couple options here. Just, just take some of the bread, dip it in one, of the, in one of the cups, and then just say, thank you, Jesus. I receive this. Thank you. You can pray it out loud if you want. You can pray it internally if you want. And the cool thing is, is Greenhouse doesn't even have membership, so you don't have to be a member here. You don't even have to be a long time, you don't even have to be a long time Christian. This can literally be the moment where you surrender your life to Christ. If God's working in you, if the Spirit is working you in that way, let this be the moment that you do that. And then be sure and let us know. Find someone afterwards and, and tell us, right? Because we want to celebrate with you. And then you can be baptized in a couple weeks, right? So let's do this. Take your time, talk to God. We're not in a rush. We're not going anywhere. But let's go to Jesus right now. God, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you see the reality of our broken situation. God, we live in a broken and hurtful world. It's crazy. God, you understand that because you lived in it. You didn't want it to be this way, but it's the way that we steered it. And you meet us in the reality of that. You meet us in the fear of what's going on in, in, our, in our nation, in our world, in all the stuff that's going on. You meet us in that. This isn't unique or new, what we're experiencing today. God, you don't want us to live in that fear. You, you want us to live in freedom, in truth, in love. God, for maybe some of us, that, that battle, that turmoil, that rejection is more internal. Maybe there's things going on in our lives and our relationships and our hearts and our minds that, that are just broken. And we're having a hard time trusting you. That you can heal us. That you can restore us. God, if you could raise someone from the dead, you can heal our hearts. You can restore our minds. You can set us free. You can bring us back together. You can ignite the passion for our families, for our community, for our neighborhoods. God, when we start off our days, we already feel beat because we feel alone, empty, weak, overwhelmed. You are right there with us. You know us. You love us. You want to empower us in that long obedience in the same direction and there's going to be setbacks, there's going to be confusion, there's going to be hurt. But God, what you did for us on the cross is more powerful than anything we will ever face in this life. So God, help us to surrender to that, help us to cling to that, help us to know that that is true, that that is real, that that wants to reveal itself in our lives. God, help us to take a leap of faith. That we let go of all the other stuff and we go all in with you. 
whether it be for the first time or, God, maybe we've been walking with you for years, but we've gotten discouraged or sidetracked, God, draw us to yourself. Show us your strength. So, God, as we celebrate communion together, God, I pray that we would just have a tangible reminder of the price for that, the gift that you gave us out of love. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us first. We pray these things in your name.